Um, so th this text has a lot of uh, important themes, but I think one that uh, stands out to me is, is the idea of repetition. So maybe if you're like me, you struggle at times with remembering um, maybe important dates or people's names. Um, so for instance, me and my wife Sarah at church will meet a new couple and as soon as we get done with that conversation, I'll turn around and say, Sarah, what was their name? I've already forgotten within five seconds the name that I just learned. Um, and especially now as a, a teacher at Thales, I have a lot more names to try and get. And it is, yeah, that, that's is stretching me a little bit more than I'm used to. Um, I've heard the trick for remembering names is you say the name four times in the midst of one conversation. If you can repeat it enough times, that helps sort of lock it into your memory. Um, it's kind of like as a student, if you hear your teacher say something twice, that that's very obviously something that's important. Maybe that's going to be on the test. You should remember that. It's, it serves as emphasis by the repetition. Well, today in our text, John records the words of Jesus as he's speaking to these officers, and he records uh, a repetition. that Jesus repeats himself twice. Um, and what we're going to see is he does that to say that despite the circumstances that he finds himself in, Jesus is still the one who is teaching. He is still the teacher in this context. So I want to show the significance of Jesus' words because John, as a gospel writer, um, maybe more so even than the other gospels, really emphasizes what Jesus does, his actions, his words, and kind of doesn't spend much time looking at the words and actions of those around him. Uh, he's, he's trying to show that Jesus is the key figure, the, the key mover of the story. So he spends most of his time looking at what Jesus does. So we'll divide this into three main sections today. Uh, verses one through four, we'll see that Jesus is sovereign over the events. And then in verses five through nine, we'll see that uh, Jesus is divine, that he is God. And then finally in verses 10 to 14, we'll see that Jesus is the savior who lays down his life. So first we'll look at Jesus's sovereignty and the events that surround his arrest. So the start of verse one of chapter 18 says, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now that serves as a transition, uh, not just from chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer, uh, but really from the entirety of the first 17 chapters of the gospel of John. So in the first uh, 12 or so chapters, he spends his time looking at the public ministry of Jesus, what Jesus did out among crowds and in towns and in public places. And then in chapters 13 to 17, he spends his time looking at the private ministry of Jesus. So what he does with his disciples uh, and when he is alone praying. And so here in chapter 18, John turns the story to now look at the passion story of Jesus Christ. As uh, we'll see in chapters 18 and 19, we'll record uh, Jesus's betrayal, his arrest, various trials before Roman and Jewish officials, and eventually his sentence to death, his crucifixion and his burial in a new tomb. This morning, our passage will show us the first two steps of that, this betrayal by Judas and then his arrest at the hands of these officials. So first we read that he was in the garden. It says that he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, if you recall the, the story around Easter time, we, we celebrate Good Friday. That's the day that Jesus is crucified on Friday, so this would have been late into the night on Thursday. And the reason that he goes into this garden is because the, the Jewish law at the time said that if you were a Jew, you had to stay in the greater area of Jerusalem. 
So oftentimes we've seen Jesus retreat to Bethany in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But instead here he goes to this garden in Gethsemane. And that's a place that he also oftentimes would go to to spend time with his disciples. What we see is that he goes here, um, but we know that this is a place that he goes regularly because Judas, in verse 2, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Uh, Back in chapter 13, if you recall the Last Supper, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples will betray him. He says, one of you will betray me. And at that point, Jesus, or Judas gets up and leaves. Now in chapter 18, Judas has returned as the disciple who has accomplished the task that Christ predicted he would. He's brought this guard with him. But it's important, I think, to see that Jesus didn't go somewhere that he'd be hidden away, right? He didn't, he didn't retreat to this garden in hopes that he would not be found. It says that Judas knew the place. Jesus' Jesus's mission has always been to go and die on the cross for his people. Uh, in Luke, we get a little bit uh, of maybe of context to this. Luke 9, 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That, that was the direction he was going And then later in chapter 13 of Luke, Jesus explains why he's heading for Jerusalem. He says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. See, Jesus knows full well that Good Friday will bring his crucifixion, but he goes to the garden knowing that this is where he'll be found. See, Jesus could have easily hidden away in a closet, but he did not. Um, He went to a place that Luke's gospel again tells us that he went regularly teaching by day in the temple and by night he would go to the Mount Olivet and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sort of in that same region. Uh, It's clear that Jesus is sovereignly overseeing these events. He is dictating the order of the things that are happening. And then verse 3, we see that Judas didn't come alone to betray him, but he brought a band of soldiers, or as your translation said, a cohort of soldiers Um, John doesn't really give us the exact number of people who would have been with him, uh, but a full Roman cohort would have been about a thousand people. Uh, It's it's meant to be the idea that there's a big group that are coming after Jesus. It's not just one person who's who's trying to come in the middle of the night, but it's a a large army. And likely not all a thousand would have been there, but it does say that there's also officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and that they're all carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. This is, again, the middle of the night, late into Thursday night. So it's dark. There aren't street lights nearby that might obscure what the lights that are coming. This is a mob of people with weapons and lights that are coming to find Jesus in this garden. He would have known they were coming. If it was his desire to flee, him and his disciples could have turned and ran the other way. But they didn't. Instead, they stay there, and quite the opposite happens. Verse 4 says that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward So Jesus could have run, but instead he comes forward. And it significantly says that he did so knowing all that would happen to him. John's gospel doesn't record the the words of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in quite the same way as the other um, gospels do. But what we see in Luke and in John, or in Luke and in Matthew, is that Jesus is in fervent prayer to the Father. He's Uh, Luke tells us that he's sweating as great drops of blood. Um, In Matthew 26, Jesus says the words, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. See, when Jesus comes forward, it's not 
this false overconfidence. It's knowingly stepping into a situation. This is the way that one, uh, one theologian has said this. The evangelist mentions this for two reasons. This being that he came forward knowing all that happens to him. The, the evangelist mentions this for two reasons. First, so that it does not appear that the question he is asking comes from his ignorance. And secondly, so that it does not seem that he is offering himself unintentionally and without knowing that they have come to kill him. He knew everything that would happen to him. Have you, have you ever considered that? That Jesus knew what would happen when he stepped out of the garden? Does that bring you maybe comfort or does that make you fearful for our Lord? Uh, you know, he, is, he knows the trouble that he's facing. And for us, if, if we were to leave here this afternoon and plug in where we're going on the GPS and see that there was an accident on Rogers that was going to be a five-minute delay, we'll go miles out of our way to avoid even the slightest trouble. But Jesus directs himself towards the trouble because he knows the cost that he is going to pay. He knows the value of what he's doing. So he steps into our trouble for us. You see, Jesus is laying down his life for his disciples here, but he's also laying his life down for you and me. This isn't a, an action that happened long ago with no lasting impact. His, his work is for us. So when he steps out of the garden knowingly, he does so knowing that you and I will be here this morning worshiping him and hearing about what he has done for us. We can clearly see God's compassion in his sacrifice. You know, think about uh, any superhero movie that has ever been made, right? There's a villain that's terrorizing some town and these people can't save themselves, they're helpless. So there's a hero that uh, the, the hero thinks, okay, well, I can step in here. I might lose my life by doing this, but they go anyway and they fight and they, they beat the bad guy and that saves the people. Uh, but that's not exactly what happens here, right? Jesus isn't going and, and risking his life and knowing it might cost everything. Jesus is going knowing it costs everything. He's, he's laying down his life, not risking it. He knows the cost that he is paying. And knowingly, intentionally, he lays his life down for his people. You see, when Jesus asks, whom do you seek? He knows the answer. As God's incarnate son, he knows the day will come when he will be sought out by his enemies, betrayed, and he would be killed for it. And even still, he knows that he will lay down his life for his people in that moment. So it's clear then that from these verses, we can see that Jesus is sovereignly in control of these proceedings. And now in verses five through nine, we'll be able to see why it is that Jesus can be sovereign over these things. It's because he is divine, because he is God. So what we'll see in, short, uh, in his short response in verses five and eight is that Jesus is declaring his own divinity. So when they answer the question, whom do you seek? They do so purposefully in a rude way. So the, the translation that I have, the ESV, says that they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, but uh, the translation that was read before is actually uh, a literal translation. They're literally saying, Jesus the Nazarene. Uh, if you recall back in John 1, there's this story of Philip and Nathaniel as they're being called to be disciples. Philip says, you have to come meet this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was meant to be rude when these, uh, these officers come and say, the Nazarene, that's who we're looking for. Uh, Jesus has done nothing wicked in his life, but they seek to destroy this person despite the miracles he's done in their midst. But at their name calling, 
Jesus does not fall back and cower. Instead, his simple response sends them on their backs. When Jesus says, I am he, there's a lot more depth of meaning than maybe we have at first glance. As you guys have worked through the Gospel of John, certainly you've seen these various I am phrases of Jesus. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Before Abraham was, I am. And many, many more statements that, that Jesus has said, proving that he is, I am. And here in chapter 18, even Judas, who was standing with them, would have understood that Jesus isn't just saying, yes, I'm the person you're looking for, but he's saying, I am God. So back in Exodus chapter 3, this is the significance of the I am phrase. God appears to a man named Moses and speaks to him out of a burning bush. And in this conversation with Moses, God says, I am the Lord your God. I will save the people of Israel out of slavery under Pharaoh and Egypt. And Moses says, well, if they ask who it is who's saving them, what name should I tell them? Who is it who is calling me? Um, And God responds and says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. See, those words are miraculous and significant, but I think sometimes we we sort of lose a little bit of the, the luster of what those words mean. See, God is not the God who was powerful or the God who will become something different. God always is. Now he is because he is outside of time. He is here with us and he is in the future and he is in the past. This God is uh, not training to become better. He has always been perfect. So when God, when Jesus here says, I am, he is saying that he is that same God. Maybe even more um, powerful, or or maybe to add a little bit of nuance to this, Isaiah 45 verse 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, I am the Lord and there is no other. See, what my Bible and most modern Bible translations will render as Lord in all capital letters That's the name, I am who I am. That's meant to be a representation of the name Yahweh, the the God that we worshiped in the Old Testament. It's the same name, uh, but translated in a different way. So when Jesus says, I am who I am, he's saying, I am God, and there is no other like me. In, In the words of Isaiah, I am he, and there is no other like me. And as I've already mentioned, they they did come in the middle of the night, these officials. So perhaps when they asked their question or when they responded to Jesus's question, there's a chance that maybe they truly did not know if Jesus was the one they were speaking to. But what's clear is at these short phrase, the men see who it is they're speaking to. And it says that they fall back and that they fall to the ground. Now these were soldiers, right? These were warriors. They, They weren't just, you know, frail, small people who are just sort of wandering and scared as they walked. These were people who were battle-tested. And so when they come and they face Jesus, it's not like Jesus is hiding behind a bush and he jumps out and scares them and says, it's me, and they all fall back to the ground. No, these are hardened men. And so when they say, I am he, it's not that they are frightened and startled, it's that they feel the force of God's words. They can tell that this person speaks as one with authority. And particularly the Pharisees and the officials of the Jews, they would have recognized that Jesus is self-identifying as God, that he is Yahweh, and that they cower in response 
to the power of his name. Despite being physically outnumbered, Jesus continues to demonstrate his total control over this encounter. In John 10, Jesus tells the Pharisees that he lays down his life for his own. And that's what he continues to do here as he says in verse, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 8, sorry, lost my place. He says, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. So even still, as this, as this moment is coming that he's being arrested and he is the one who is being sought after, he continues to be in control of the situation. Uh, just because he is being arrested, he still is able to tell these soldiers who would have known to respond to the commands of their rulers and their leaders when Jesus says, let these men go, they choose to submit to him, perhaps out of fear from the power of his response already. See, the selflessness of Christ has always been a, a striking quality. Even in this moment, he's, his life is threatened, but his desire is always to protect and save his people. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says of his disciples, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus, as the good shepherd, has always considered the lives of his sheep as valuable. And so, even here in this moment, he is laying down his life for his sheep. And see, again, I think that the significance of their, the response and their listening to Jesus is part of them recognizing, even if not out of reverent love, but out of fear, that Jesus is authoritative. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus tells Peter, do you not think, or do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? See, they would deny that Jesus is the Christ, but they would be unable to deny that he is powerful. And so for that, they submit to Christ. I think it's significant for us if we think about Jesus as being in our struggles. So perhaps you're, if you're like me, I'm, I'm a student right now, and there are fears that can face a student such as, what will the future hold for me? What, will I be able to find a job? Will my degree be helpful down the road? Will I be able to provide for myself or for a family? And there's fears that face us. Or perhaps you're uh, dealing with uh, family members who are aging, or, or you're aging yourself, and the, the fears of, well, what will five years bring? What will 10 years bring? Those kinds of things can bring us anxiety, but we can hold on to the promise that Jesus is the great I am. So despite the fact that we may have anxiety over our struggles now, Jesus is there in our struggles that we haven't even faced yet. He's already there. In that, we can sense the peace that God intends to give us. There's the good and perfect comforter, Jesus, is there for us. We are bound to time, but he is not. So that should be a comfort for the Christians. And for the non-Christians, perhaps this is something that causes fear, that, that we can't get by with, well, if I do enough now, I can probably do more good than bad, and then by the end of my life, I can do a lot of good at the end, and then that'll be what makes me safe. But that's not the way that God sees things. It's not as though uh, God counts only the last five things that you do before you make it into heaven or don't make it into heaven. God sees all of your life. And that's why we need what we see in verses 10 through 14. We see that Jesus is the Savior. So this section in verse 10 starts with uh, the words that Jim read earlier, the, the reckless decision of Peter, that having the sword, he drew it and struck the priest's servant and cut off 
his ear. And see, the, the problem was Peter always thought that he could step up and defend Jesus, that Jesus needed defending and he was the one who would do it. Uh, a few chapters earlier, Jesus has predicted and told Peter, you will deny me three times. And maybe this is Peter's response saying, no, I won't. I'll step up and I'll face this army of hundreds of people and I'll take them down with just my sword. But Jesus doesn't intend to fight in that way. That's, that's not the way that he builds his kingdom. And see, Peter has misunderstood Jesus throughout the Gospels, whether it's uh, Jesus telling them that he must suffer and die and Peter telling him, no, that, that cannot happen and trying to rebuke Jesus. Or, or when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and he says, uh, Peter tells Jesus, no, we should be washing your feet, not the other way around. See, Peter's never quite understood what Jesus is trying to do and how Jesus intends to accomplish his plan. And so for that, he steps up and, and cuts off this servant's ear. But Jesus, the ever-patient teacher, responds by telling Peter to sheath his sword and telling him that he must drink the cup that the Father has given him. Now, each of the other Gospels records the words of Jesus as he's praying in Gethsemane, saying, Father, take this cup from me if it is your will. The cup, which we will come to see throughout the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19, is God's righteous wrath against sin, that, that God must punish sin, and that Jesus, as he drinks this cup, is him taking that punishment for us, that he is bearing our guilt by drinking this cup. See, not only will Jesus face physical suffering as he's beaten and spit on and mocked and crucified, but the, the real anguish that he will suffer is the spiritual anguish. As he is drinking the full cup of God's wrath poured out against sinful humanity, Jesus is absorbing the judgment of the Father. And that seems hard maybe for us to hear, but in, in fact, that's the greatest victory in history what we had gotten ourselves into, the hole that we had dug, we, we had no ability to get out of. But Jesus stepped in as God in the flesh and drank the cup that we deserved for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the cup that Jesus must drink earns for us the righteousness of God. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, you no longer bear the punishment and guilt of your sin. In fact, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ. Beloved, it's for this reason that we're here this morning, that we can worship our risen Savior who has died for us, that, that he is drank or drunk, this cup, I'm not sure the past tense there, he has taken this cup for us. And because of that, we have eternal peace with God. And this begins the process in verses 12 to 14 of him drinking this cup on our behalf. He is arrested under cover of night and led bound to this man, Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. John includes this detail to remind his readers that God even now, is still in control. Jesus may be bound and led throughout the middle of the night to these different uh, judges, one after another, these various trials, but what God is doing is being accomplished through their wicked deeds. 
Caiaphas is quoted from back in chapter 11 where he begins the plot to kill Jesus. Now, if you remember that, Caiaphas thought by eliminating Jesus that the Jews would stay in power. His desire was that Jesus would be sacrificed at his own throne and that he would fall down before the feet of the Jewish officials so that they might not lose power that Rome had given them. But almost like Joseph's words in Genesis, what Caiaphas intended for evil, God intended for good. Because Jesus, in fact, is the one who would die for the people. But he doesn't just die for the people as though he's some distant God that that doesn't care for anybody or know anybody. He's not a stranger to this story. No, he dies for his people. As the good shepherd, Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. He is personal and knows and cares for and loves his people. He knows each and every one of us. He can count the number of hairs on our head. He knows our hearts and our thoughts. Unlike the cruel, twisted leaders of the Pharisees in Rome, he died that we might be reconciled with God. Instead of reserving his own power for himself, he gives us freedom from sin in his death. And Jesus didn't just die for his people. See, the the compelling part of the story of Christianity is that we don't serve a savior who was crucified and that's the end of the story. Jesus now lives on behalf of his people. The tomb we will see in chapter 20 is not full. It is empty because Jesus now lives. See, Caiaphas may not have even understood how prophetic his words were, but now for us as Christians, they're sweet to us today and to those all around the world that Jesus did die for the people. So if you're a Christian, If you feel to this day, if you still feel guilt over your sin, if you feel the weight of uh, Christ's or God's judgment against you, let me encourage you to rest in the righteousness of Christ that he earned for you. You see, Jesus had promised to take this burden from you. He made a promise that he would bear our grief but so many of us struggle to let that go, that we, we want to continue in holding on to these things that Christ wants to free us from. Trust in Jesus and feel the freedom from guilt that he has given you. And if you're not a Christian today, how does this message hit you? How does the story of this man who has stepped in the place of his disciples and has controlled the circumstances around him how does this strike you? Maybe this is the first time you've heard uh, the story of Jesus, this man who's died in your place. Maybe it's the 500th time you've heard this story. But I think this is a story we can all relate to. You know, maybe you have a friend or a family member or a coworker or whatever it may be that you have let down. And when you let your friends down, you feel this as though the world is caving in on you, that, that you are under this significant weight. You don't know what you're gonna do to get out from underneath it. See, God himself who created you, who gives you air to breathe, who has given you life, has come to take that burden from you, to take your guilt from you. What is it that holds you back from trusting in him? What are the the speed bumps that stand in your way of resting in God's freedom? That might be a good question for you to think through over the next few days. Just trusting God. Uh, that Christ does love and care for you. So as we've walked through these 14 verses today, we've seen that Jesus is sovereign 
over these events. We've seen that he is God, he is divine, and we've seen that he is the savior that has bought our salvation. If you will, I'm gonna close in prayer. Please pray with me.